All right. You will, uh, if you would, we'll ask your patience to bear with us. Our deacons meeting went a little longer. We were praying uh, for the body, um, discussing. We had a great meeting this afternoon. Um, Jonathan has a little bit of a part in our service tonight, so he's going to get set up while I get started. Um, we have a video that we'll show in just a minute that I didn't get to last week as we review. Um, uh, we'll highlight that. But I want to start kind of where we ended the sermon this morning. If you have your Bible, go to uh, 2 Samuel 23. Yes. Is that okay? Yes. Okay, perfect. 2 Samuel 23. I'll introduce uh, our topic again this evening, um, give you some... Uh, overview. Uh, we kind of have a hodgepodge tonight. We're going to do a lot of different things, um, address a few things, and then take your questions at the end again. Uh, 2 Samuel 23, uh, verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. This is a passage that highlights what God intends for leadership to be in all levels. Uh, this has captured my attention as we think about what leadership in the church looks like, how very different it is from the world's view of leadership and influence. Uh, the main topic that we're focusing on this evening is elders in Baptist history. It's not a long study. I want to go back real quick to talk about elders um, in congregational-led church or talking about the congregation's authority. I wanted to highlight a couple of things. First, um, I told you last week that this was a book that I had used. I found it very helpful. I have several copies. It's very short. I was thinking of you. It's very short, okay? And I would even recommend just the first chapter and the last chapter and the appendix. It has some frequently asked questions, if that's all you have time to read. Um, but this was really helpful in thinking about our structure as, as a church, not in the sense of what's the best way to be organized, but rather what is the way that God has demonstrated in his word that will help us disciple each other toward Christ. And I think he really captures that well in chapter one, and then he, he uh, reemphasizes that in the last chapter. Um, I came across this again in my reading this week, and I wanted to highlight it as we think about um, our life together as a church. Um, this quote starts, despite the tendency to ignore it, biblical leadership is crucial to building a church that glorifies God. That's, that's our goal. The exercise of leadership in the church relates to God's nature and character. That's what we see in 2 Samuel 23. When Christians exercise proper authority through the secular law, around the family table, in our jobs, in the scout troop, in our homes, and especially in the church, when Christians exercise proper authority, we help to display God's image to his creation. In a day when we're told authority is bad, it's always exercised poorly. It's oppressive. We should resist it in every way. This is countercultural. But we need God's help to make sure we're reflecting his glory. This is a Christian and a church's calling and privilege. 
So we want to think about our responsibility as a congregation. That's what we talked about last week. Um, We'll show you this quick video that's a summary, and then we'll talk about um, our structure. Jonathan, we were asked a question. We wanted to show that to you this week a little bit and talk through that. All right? Let's understand how that level of authority relates to an office in a church like elders. How does the congregation's authority and then the authority that elders have, how do, how do those work together? Well, elders are leaders. So the, the elders, it's clear, say, in Acts 20 with the Ephesian church or in uh, just the qualifications for elders in First Timothy 3 or Titus 1, the elders or pastors, it's the same, same they're used interchangeably, those words have the responsibility to teach, uh, to guide, uh, but that's it. We're not the church. The church, the congregation is the church. So we teach and we guide, but the church has to follow. And the church can choose not to follow. And when we're wrong, the church should choose not to follow. Now, hopefully, we're never wrong. Right. But you know what we're like as fallen creatures, even though we're redeemed, we are wrong sometimes. So uh, in our congregation, I've been here 22 years, and I can only think of one time uh, that a motion that was from me was voted down. And, uh, and even then, it was because of a constitutional provision that required 75%, and we had like 66 or 70%. When you say voted down, you mean voted down by the congregation? That's right. That's right, at a members meeting, a duly constituted members meeting. I think it's helpful. I've heard you use the illustration before, but I wondered if you could do it again in this setting when you talk about the congregation being the emergency break on the decision-making process. I think that's a helpful... Yeah, I think one of the bad ideas about the responsibility for the congregation is that people think the congregation as a whole needs to decide what bus we're going to buy, you know, what Xerox machine we're going to purchase. Color of the carpet, that kind of thing. That's disasters, usually. That's... Now, if, if you have a high degree of congregational unity, and if the, the elders or the deacons, the leaders in your church think it's wise, they can involve the congregation in those kind of things. You have to be very careful not to sort of use up the congregation's time for stuff that's really not the point. Yeah. The most important thing the congregation will do is take in members, <coughs> see out members, uh, and recognize elders. So, elect a new pastor or other pastors in the congregation. Um, those are really the, the chief things they're going to do in a matter of business. Yeah. Because what we do, we, we care for each other. And the way we care for each other is we let the elders do their leading, the teaching. Uh, so Hebrews 13 exhorts us to obey our leaders. That means the elders are the steering wheel of the church. The congregation doesn't steer. The congregations want the emergency break. If the elders start to teach you like, like uh, Peter did with the Galatians when he was sitting only with the Hebrew believers. And Paul saw in that an undermining of the gospel. Even though Peter, in his case, had apostolic authority, Paul was instructing the congregations, don't follow anyone that teaches you something like that. Mm -hmm. So the congregations have that kind of responsibility. Another example is in 2 Timothy 4, when Paul is talking to Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church, and he says there's going to be a time coming when people won't endure sound teaching But to suit their own passions, they will gather around the teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. Now, what's interesting there is he doesn't just blame the false teachers. And James 3.1 says teachers will be held accountable to a stricter judgment. So teachers like me, and I suppose you, we do have extra responsibility, right? But also, the congregation that sits and listens to false teaching 
bears some of the responsibility of that false teaching because they let it happen. They nobody, let it happen. Nobody spoke up. They're nobody. sitting there listening. They're, they're maybe paying for it. They're, they're maybe just appearing to give approval to it. I, from time to time, will exhort my congregation to fire me. You know, <laughs> if you really love me, fire me. Uh-huh. If I start teaching you something that's seriously wrong. Now, I'm not talking about just a disagreement over important but secondary things like Israel. Uh-huh. You know, well, that's not an unimportant issue, but it's not, it's not the gospel. Right. Um, but if I start teaching you something false about the person of Christ or how we're saved or what it means to be saved, yeah, then you need to, out of your love for me, so I don't incur more judgment on myself from God uh-huh. before his judgment seat. You need to, in love, get rid of me. Just like Paul in Galatians 1.8, you know, says, right. if I or an angel from heaven, Moroni, uh-huh. should come and teach you any other gospel than one you've received, let him be accursed. hard to follow up on that one. <laughs> but I am here just basically to report back on the question that was asked. I can't even remember who it was. it Matt Carroll or someone um, asked a question about what is the structure uh, if you are looking for a particular um, authority structure, what is it for us in our church currently? And then where are we going? And is a hard question to answer. I sat and just graphed and drew and tried to figure out, well, how does our church work? Because um, we operate a certain way, and is that necessarily how it's supposed to be as far as how the church was originally structured? Uh, we basically just seem to have found something that works and have settled into that. So uh, if you know of some type of system we've had in the past, and this doesn't jive with that, um, let me know. But I'm just sharing with you how we typically, or how we currently operate, and then we'll get to the next step. So this, as far as I can tell, is along the lines of what our church structure currently is. And I will be able to help you out here because I realize um, there's lots on that screen. Up here you have the lead pastor. And from the lead pastor you will see there are these little lines coming down. And that's basically the authority. Um, in our church, the pastor has a lot of authority. Um, that's going down even to the administrative assistant, to the assistant pastor's. Uh, the pastor has the uh, ability to hire those people on and the ability to let those people go. Uh, now, thankfully, with our current pastor, uh, he has not ever done that uh, unilaterally. He has sought advice. He has gone to um, our deacons who have served as uh, a quasi-deacon-elder board um, over the years. But the point is, in our current structure, there is one man who has most of the authority. And with that authority, he has most of the power. Um, so that's where we are. We have trustees. The trustees uh, oversee the building. They are somewhat of a decision-making 
board right now where they have a budget and they have some determination on what is going to be done with that budget. Uh, even if the uh, pastors would come, they have some say on whether or not that is going to take place. So there's some authority in the trustees. Uh, then there's the assistant pastors uh, who also answer to the lead pastor, and they oversee the ministries that you'll find, except for the worship team, that goes directly back to the lead pastor. Um, we have some staff members like custodial maintenance and administrative assistant that work on a, a part-time basis, and they will also answer uh, to the assistant pastors, but also back to the lead pastor. So the buck stops here <laughs> in our church. Um, and praise the Lord, uh, the pastors we've had over the years have used that well. And we can be thankful for that. But I grew up in a church where we had pretty much the structure. And when the congregation attempted to remove that man, uh, he took a chain and he padlocked the front door. And he said, you can't get rid of me. I'm the pastor. I'm God's man. So <laughs> thank you. For not <laughs> Don't worry, I can get Greg Garrison to come and just <laughs> cut that thing right in two. Um, the other component is a financial committee with a financial director. Uh, that group re re goes all the way. I'm trying to talk too fast. That goes back to the lead pastor um, who works with them. And again, they're kind of like trustees in how they formulate and sign off on things. So there you have, if you want care, that care happens right here. So um, deacons have been doing a wonderful job of caring for the physical needs. The deacons also have done a wonderful job with spiritual needs, um, looking into lives. But that is one of the places where we want to get some more um, definition about what those responsibilities are, which would lead us to our next slide. Um, this is not original slide with me. Um, actually, the guy you saw up there um, with nine marks in the video, uh, this comes from nine marks. I just changed it up a little bit. And I will walk this, you through this because I know the words are really small. Um, there's God. God is the head of our church. So when we're thinking about authority, God is the ultimate authority. And what God does is he authorized, that's what this little word here is, God authorized the elders, he gives them authority to instruct and oversee the congregation. So there is an authority that God gives to the elders to instruct and oversee the congregation. But there's this line over here, and it also says authorize. Because God authorizes the congregation to appoint, submit, and remove elders. So there isn't one line of authority here. 
there's a role that God gives and the authority goes with the role, not with the person. So the elders' authority is to instruct and oversee, to help the congregation grow in spiritual things. But the congregation, just as you heard Mark Dever say, they have an authority. That authority is to decide who the elders are going to be and then to submit and to remove those elders should they begin to preach error. So that's the authority structure. But then, okay, so how does that look when it comes to how our church operates? And that shows us where we want to head. The authority in this case is the elders. And remember, that authority isn't something they have. It's something that God has authorized them. So there's a role, and they must operate within that role. And you'll see that they are in a circle. Because in a plurality of elders, there is no one person who has more say than any other person in the group of elders. So there is no one man where the buck start, stops here. All the, all the elders work together in, for a consensus in God's leading. So in the mission of the church, God is using the elders to determine what that mission will be. Uh, they are working together. Then you have the deacons. The deacons are here to help the elders. So the deacons are, as we talked about in our church polity thing, they're removing uh, friction within the body. So they work in conjunction with the elders to care for the congregation. And this is where that delineation I was talking about earlier comes in, that these, the elders, are primarily focused on the spiritual needs and growth of the body. The deacons will be focused more on the facilities, the physical, as in health needs, of our body. There may be some elders, I mean some deacons, early on, who will also assist the elders in spiritual things as well. Um, so that care of both physical and spiritual needs, um, some deacons will come alongside the elders to help with that. Uh, and then the congregation receives that care. Um, so really, in a lot of ways, I have authority up here, but <laughs> that probably should be how the, the congregation is ministered to is with the elders and the deacons working together to serve um, the congregation. Uh, the reason why the authority thing pops up there is because there is the practical side of how things work. And so you aren't going to see this very much. What you're going to see is this. You are probably going to see Pastor Jim just as much as you ever have. Um, because there is a line between these two things where how does the church staff operate? Elders are not church staff. 
They are leadership of the church. But as you can see, some of these elders also hold staff positions. So you will see Pastor Jim is an elder, and as it stands right now, um, myself and Stephen would be in the elder circle, but we are also on staff. So it puts us in a very interesting situation where Stephen and I are equal with Jim as elders, but we are under him as staff. Does that make sense? That gives us this wonderful opportunity to do this word called submit. (laughs) And so even though elders, staff elders, are equal to their boss, they submit when they are in the role of being on staff. Now, Jim doesn't get off on this either because it goes back the other direction because the lead pastor must submit to the elders in his role as lead pastor. So while he is one of the elders, he can't just arbitrarily arbitrarily decide what the church is going to do. He's got to bring that into a consensus in the elder group, and then he submits to them to carry that out with the staff. There are some situations where we could have a staff member who is doing something like a pastor, let's just say a youth leader, and that youth leader may not be an elder, but he is someone who is teaching the youth or leading in the youth. So they're staff member, a paid staff member, but they are not an elder. And then once they've proven themselves, then they may become an elder. Uh, That could change over time. But I'm just showing you there are different ways that we can have um, elders working together. So as you look at our church, you're going to see this operate pretty much the same way you always have. Uh, There's really not going to be a lot of difference there. But who is guiding and who is holding the um, authority has changed. It's just happening underneath as it's moved to a plurality of elders rather than one person. Does that make sense? Have I confused everybody? (laughs) So this is an interesting thing. I was talking to Jim. It's kind of like the Trinity, you know, Uh, a a dunity because there's two. You know, there's you're you're an elder and you are a staff member. And God and the spirit, the father, the son and the spirit are all equal. They are they are God. But. In a role, the son willingly submits himself to the father and the spirit to the son and the father. So the elders and staff pastors are going to have to learn to model what God himself has modeled for us in the Trinity. And that really is our model for the leadership here at Subaru Baptist Church. Um, 
I can email these things to you if you can't get my binoculars. If you want a closer look at it or if you have any further questions, um, feel free to come to me uh, and I'll hand it over to Jim and he can now answer all the mess I made. <laughs> Not at all. I'm grateful Jonathan is good at that and has a knack for that because I don't. We talked through that and I thought that was a really helpful way to illustrate that and show you that. Um, I want to talk now about um, elders in Baptist history. Um, this may not be a primary issue for you. Um, where this comes from, a couple of questions bring this up. Early on when you introduce this in a church like ours, one of the first questions is, is, is that even Baptist? Are, are we trying to be Presbyterians? Are you kind of sneaking something in on us? Or as we've talked about this, and I'd encourage you, if you're new to this discussion, we have lots of information on that back table in the auditorium. I'd start with that worksheet called Elders and Deacons in the Bible. Um, when we went through that, um, I had one of our members come up to me right away afterward, and this was not unique. I'd had this happen before, and he says to me, then where in the world did we get what we're doing? If this is what's in the Bible, there's so many passages about plural eldership. There's so few passages about deacons. Where did we get this form of government? So I'm going to answer that to the best of my ability, very simply and quickly. Um, there's three main points that I want to share with you tonight. Um, very quickly, church history is a very big subject, right? And Baptist history is a big subject within that subject. So we're not going to cover all of that. That would take us a long time. Um, so the, the answers are three. First, many Baptist congregations had in the past and have today a plurality of elders in their churches. The point is this is not foreign to Baptist churches. This is not an anti-Baptist thing and we're chasing something that another denomination has done just because we like it better. Um, second, there are many more churches that don't have this polity. There are many that today do not, and that, that's okay. We'll talk about that and address that again. And then thirdly, um, our Baptist history, and really it, it doesn't matter if it's Baptist history or not, but what we appreciate about Baptist history is that it rightly emphasizes that the authority in the room is always, always, always the word. So if I see something in the word, history is not my argument, the word is. So I have to reconcile what I see when I see over and over in New Testament churches a plurality of pastors, elders, bishops, right? Overseers. So it, it would probably give us pause if we were the first church to ever practice this, wouldn't it? Yeah, that may not be a great idea unless we see it in the Bible and we say we're going to have to step out in faith. It's encouraging, though, to see other believers in the past having wrestled through this and come to the same conclusion. So the first point, um, again, I'll try to move through this quickly. Many Baptist congregations did govern their churches by plural eldership. Now, the purpose of this historical survey is to show that from their earliest beginnings, Baptist churches, some of them have held to the view that the two offices in the church are elders and deacons. And that really only in more modern developments has the eldership disappeared from Baptist churches. 
Uh, one seminary professor and church historian, Sean Wright, offers several points of evidence. He first says the early confessions included this teaching. So his points are going to focus really on English Baptists in the 1600s when Baptists as a denomination first began to appear. Again, that is not our loyalty. Our loyalty is to the scripture, right? We're not Baptist because it's on a sign or because that's the denomination we have to belong to. It's what the Bible teaches, baptism of believers by immersion. So we're not arguing this to say we've got to be Baptist. If somebody said, put a gun to me and said, does your church have to be named Baptist? I would say no. No, that's not the important thing. All right. So but the early confessions included this teaching. Uh, a declaration of faith of English people remaining at Amsterdam in 1611. So this was an early confession. Article 20 states, the officers of every church or congregation are either elders, notice it's plural, who by their office do especially feed the flock concerning their souls. Acts 20, 28, which we've looked at, 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, which we've looked at, or deacons. Men and women who by their office relieve the necessities of the poor and impotent brethren concerning their bodies. Again, this continues, 1646 edition of the first London Baptist Confession. It says this, every church hath power given them from Christ. So Christ is the authority for their well-being to choose among themselves qualified persons. Again, plural. For elders and deacons, being qualified according to the word as those which Christ hath appointed in his testament for the feeding, government, serving, and building up of his church. The word persons there indicates an allowance for plurality of elders. Every church was to make that decision for themselves. All right, the, another point that he makes is there are examples of early Baptist congregations that practiced a plurality of elders. I'll just give you one example. John Bunyan became the pastor of his church. When he did so, there were two men who had served at previous points as pastors of that church. They resigned their offices and began to serve in the congregation as elders. There's a plurality of eldership in that church. Uh, various congregations in the 1600s questioned the validity of plural elders in their congregations. So that speaks to both of these points. But the point of mentioning this is that this is a discussion. How are churches supposed to be organized? This was already a discussion around the scriptural teaching on the government, church government. A prominent church, fourthly, in Bristol had a plurality of elders so that when their teaching elder was imprisoned for teaching against the state's commands, other elders stepped in to continue that teaching. And then many Baptist churches represented at the London Baptist Confession in 1689 were practicing this form of church government. The whole point of this is just to say this is not new. This is not unknown. This is not unbaptistic. All right? Um, in America, Baptist congregations in America, we're thinking now in the 1700s, the Philadelphia Association was the most well-known in the New World, practiced this polity. Uh, W.B. Johnson, we're moving into the 1800s. This was the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Whatever feelings you have about that name or, or whatever that denomination um, However you think about that, the point is that this kind of church is already thinking biblically. This man, who's the first president of that convention, he pastored just down the road in Anderson, South Carolina, wrote in 1864 that Baptist churches should have a plurality of elders. So he went even farther and said they, 
It's not just an option. He said he thought they should do this. Um, 1923, the Articles of Baptist Bible Union of America. We believe that a church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers, that its officers of ordination are pastors or elders and deacons whose qualifications, claims, and duties are clearly defined in the scriptures. Now, at this point, I want to explain why it seems like this polity, looking at this, is on the rise. Um, and, and one of the things that we want to think about, is this just a fad? Is this just what other churches are doing and our pastors are being swayed by their pastor friends and think, well, this is a good idea? Um, I want you to see that that's not the case. Um, we've talked about that. I think you know that's not the case. But why in general in, in the churches um, that are faithful to teaching the word is this on the rise? Um, this is an answer given in uh, a book I've been reading, um, studying the history Prominent advocates from outside our immediate context are, are speaking about how the church should be governed. So a man like John MacArthur has taught and modeled for years a plurality of elders. Uh, John Piper, since 1981, has made available his material about biblical eldership. Both men are well-respected for their love of the Bible, their commitment to following it as best they can, and they've emphasized this. Another huge influence is Mark Dever. You've seen his uh, video tonight, but he has written much. His um, fellow pastors have written much, and that's been helpful. But also, widely used systematic theologies argue effectively for this structure. So the two main theologies that I was supposed to read in college in a non-denominational seminary were Millard Erickson, and he's a Baptist, and he would argue this way, and Wayne Grudem, and he would argue this way. So you're getting this in your teaching from those that you're hearing preach the word, that you're growing to trust their handling of the word. This is leading men to begin to think through this. Another reason why it's on the rise. There is a growing, there has been a growing recognition of weaknesses within the current structure of a pastor with sole authority. We've talked about these in a practical way. Some pastors with sole authority, as Jonathan described for you or modeled for you, are far too authoritarian, even locking the door when the church said, no, we think you need to leave. They're leading to all kinds of challenges. Some are not as strong of leaders, and they need more support. And as the sole leader, where do they go? Where are they supposed to go? Who shepherds the shepherd? Some deacon-run churches are ungodly, and that's a problem. And they seem immovable, and and the pastor can't lead them. Because they're the board that is leading. They're in charge. And then a third reason why it's on the rise, especially in the Southern Baptist denomination, um, there has been a rise of a a healthy recalling to the word. Um, They even call it the conservative resurgence. And they have focused on the sufficiency of scripture, the inerrancy of the word. They had their own fight in their denomination Grateful that we don't have all of the same types of issues. We have our own, but sometimes it's good to be able to learn from across the way. They've renewed their focus on the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, and this has raised this issue again. So the first point is that this is not new. Many congregations practice this. Second point, many Baptist congregations do not govern their churches by by plural leadership. So does that mean they're wrong or that we're wrong or what, what are we saying by that? 
I, I want to be both clear and fair to the issue again. This is not the main practice of most Baptist churches in the last century. When we started this on Sunday evening, we had you raise your hands. If you've been in a, a church that's been led by elders, many of us have not. I have not. Uh, so I want to make clear again that this is not an issue of sin or disobedience to the word. It's an issue of wisdom. It's not a decision about choosing to obey or disobey the Bible. We're seeking to faithfully understand what the Bible lays out for us all over the place in the New Testament. What the Bible teaches on this subject and then apply it as a congregation to the best of our ability. So where did we get our current government structure? I promised I'd try to answer that question. Um, Largely plural eldership was lost during the 1700s of church history in America for several reasons, all right? So just think about what's happening in America at that point. Colonialism, there's a group fighting for their freedom, they're overthrowing their authority, they're saying the individual conscience matters, right? That filters into the church. A few factors, including the rise of individualism in America in the mid-1700s, as well as hyper-congregationalism mirroring the political spirit of the times, so a pastor was going to have a hard time arguing, we're going to take the, the congregation's authority, their democracy, away from them and put more authority in these several men. That just was not going to go well. So they were being very strongly influenced by the politics of the day. As churches moved west, as our country exploded and moved west, it takes time to raise up elders in a local congregation. And often when a church was pastored by a circuit-riding preacher, that couldn't happen. He was maybe ministering to four, five, six congregations. He doesn't have time to stop and raise up elders in that church. So that wasn't happening. Another denomination began using the title elder um, for all of their leaders in a manner that many Baptists just said, We're not that, and they're trying to make a distinction, so they called all their leaders pastors. They began using the less biblical uh, term, the less biblically frequent used term. And then finally, the emphasis in modern society on the personality and skill of a CEO to build a business was subtly adopted then by churches as well. So it's not one factor, it's, it's a plethora of factors. It's pragmatism. It's like, well, that's working, so... Let's let that work. As I've studied, as I've listened to others talk about this issue, most churches don't have elders prepared because they're not looking for them. They're not providing training to these men. That takes time and investment and discipling, sometimes hard conversations. Third, the last point is the Bible is our final authority for faith, though church history can be helpful. Um, Desiring God in their discussion on eldership, writes this. Of course, our only infallible rule for faith and practice is not tradition, either old or new, but rather is the word of God. We're not finally convinced by saying we can find evidence of of this in Baptist past. Nevertheless, we believe that humility and wisdom commend the careful consideration of what our fathers in the faith have taught and practiced. We're not the sole possessors of truth. And we're very prone to be blind at the very points where perhaps they saw clearly. The least we can say from a historical survey of Baptist confessions is that it is false to say that eldership is unbaptistic. So if somebody says to you, is this just a Presbyterian thing? You can say, no, it's not. And you may have to ask me for which resources to look at 
But you can say, no, it's not. That's been in our confessions for centuries. On the contrary, they conclude the eldership is more Baptistic than its absence, and its disappearance is a modern phenomenon that parallels other developments in doctrine that make its disappearance questionable at best. In the end, the issue is whether the Bible itself teaches a form of church governance that includes elders and deacons as the two offices, abiding officers of the church. Um, Where else do we see this? Where am I encouraged in other churches how they're thinking through this? So just another illustration. Again, this is supplemental. This doesn't make it right or wrong. This helps me think through it and say, okay, these are brothers that I share a common ministry philosophy with, a view of the Bible with. And this helps me. These might be dialogue partners, either in reading or in person. Churches with this polity, that that helps me think of this in an encouraging way. C.H. Spurgeon, Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle, had plurality of elders. John MacArthur, John Piper, Alistair Begg, uh, Mark Dever, Mark Minnick in our town. Um, Mount Calvary Baptist Church has elders. Hampton Park Baptist Church has elders. Calvary Baptist Church in Simpsonville. Abner Creek Baptist Church. Um, They're a fellowship that the pastors here fellowship with. Um, We've gotten to know them a little bit and have a a monthly pastors meeting with them. Heritage Bible Church, Emmanuel Bible Church, Grace Bible Church, Community Baptist Church, Trinity Bible Church. So here are fellow ministries that we say they've thought through this carefully. We've been in discussions with them. I met with one of the pastors from Hampton Park this past week to talk through some of these things. And the encouragement is, again, we're not, we're not alone in thinking through this, in working through this, looking at the scriptures. These are ministries that have set as their foundation that the word of God is what leads us. So, again, this is a secondary type of a discussion where we're saying, okay, is this something that we're out on a limb on? Or, or has this been something that's practiced by other churches? It's helpful to see that other churches throughout history have practiced this. All right, we have 10 minutes. So... You can ask a question about what we just covered. You can ask a question about our authority structure. Or we can end, if there's not enough questions, we will close our time with a couple of our men praying. All right? Any questions that have come to your mind? Yes, David. Uh, You had mentioned the evils of the deacons uh, being in authority. Sure. Yeah. So moving forward, how will elders and deacons relate? Um, so the deacons will be, um, what's the word I want to say, um, tasked, directed by the eldership. So as they see needs in the body, that's what they're to do. Again, the, I think Acts 6 is our pattern, where there's a controversy arising through a physical need being unmet, and they say we shouldn't be spending our time dealing with this because... Not that it's not important, that needs to be addressed, but we're supposed to be spending our time in prayer and in the word. Um, So can we have help? And that's what the deacons do. What I have seen, what I have experienced in our church here is that deacons and elders have vital roles both. Again, they're equal in their need. Uh, In function, one sits under the other. Does that make sense? Both are very important and described in scripture. So again, it's kind of like what Jonathan said. Uh, they're equal um, in authority, in a sense, in a sense, 
uh, maybe not authority, but in function, they're certainly sub subjected there, the deacons are. Yeah. Good. Yeah, Paul? I was out in the hallway. Just for yeah. clarification, when you pass it down to this um, diagram, within the circle of elders, am I correct that he said there is not a so how that works in general is authority authority is shared. Um, so there's a sense where absolutely that's the case. Um, what you want to happen is not somebody gets the bigger voice because of their personality or um, I've heard some argue for a first among equals based on gifting. Um, what you find in a church, even like John MacArthur's, is his voice is going to carry weight because of his proximity to the Bible. So you don't want it to be, well, this guy's just... And I think what you see then in some issues, one of the elders might have more biblical study, and, and we want that to come and bear. So when I say even first among equals, that doesn't even mean on every decision he should, he should be the deciding vote. Um, what I've seen modeled... Um, is that the lead pastor should lose some votes. What about you as the lead staff pastor? What is your role in that circle of elders? Yeah, so that would be that side one where in function, he's leading the staff and directing. Um, so as we've worked through the Constitution, that's one piece we've talked about. You still need some hierarchy, um, but the lead pastor would need, what he's seeking for now is help from the eldership in thinking through staff issues, um, in hiring staff. He's not doing that alone. He's not letting go of staff alone, but he would be the one leading the search in that. His job is to teach the word and to find. Um, the language we found that was helpful and we've included in our first draft is that his responsibility is to help promote eldership from within the body and among the staff, if that makes sense. So it's, it's holding that responsibility a little bit more loosely than just saying he's the one and only who gets to say who's hired and fired. That's not his role then. Um, he would have to talk to the elders for that to happen, if that makes sense. Did you have a follow-up on that, Paul? Yes, that's all I was thinking. Okay, yeah. How does it work when there are elders not fulfilling their role? Where does the congregation be involved in that, and where do the other elders? That's a great question. So what, what you'd want to see happen is, again, this not function as a normal hierarchy of an organization. This is a membership in Christ's body. So we're most concerned about discipleship. So if you see a member not doing their job, Matthew 18 would say, you go talk to them. Um, and if he doesn't hear you, then you take some more people with you. And I think that's when you begin to clue in the elders. Um, that's some of the language even we've included again in the Constitution. If there's an issue, we would want you to go to those people first. This is relational. Uh, shepherds are caring relationally. Just because they're on an org chart doesn't mean they have authority. And the reason we even want to keep a space for, for um, staff members, let's say a young man who comes on as a, as a youth pastor, not to make him an elder immediately is because we want him to know the body and the body to know him. The shepherd and flock Language is really important. Sheep know their shepherds and hear them and are willing to follow. Does that make sense? So we would want to make sure that that relationship is maintained. You know, and if there's a problem there, that needs to be addressed. So absolutely, that's, that's a great question. Good. Yeah, Ed? The um, diagram that Jonathan showed yeah. 
circle of elders, there was a majority of lay, if you will, lay elders. Mm -hmm. And is that also part of the direction in which you're headed? Yes. So that the responsibility is for the spiritual help and direction of the church being faithful to the word. Mm. But they're also listening to the congregation mm -hmm. and listening to God's leading. And it, this, all this has to go together. So they're the people who, through this in this way, are going to support the lead pastor and the associate pastors mm. in their work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you find, so... Sometimes people have a question about that, the number of elders, and it, it depends on the church. So think about the illustrations we have in the Bible. The church of Ephesus, Paul in Acts 20 calls the elders plural. Paul had served with them for three years. They're going to be a lot more mature and well-developed and had gone through things than when Paul says to Titus, appoint elders in every town. So that's the goal. That, that may take a while to get one, two, three, four, five elders. Does that make sense? So it depends on the health of the church, the gifts that God has put in that body, the time it takes to raise them up. If they're Titus 1.9 is supposed to teach sound doctrine and defend it, we need to have a mechanism to examine whether a man can do that and then examine his life. So that's one of the things that we're thinking about. That's one of the things that I'm asking other pastors. What ways do you do that? Jonathan has a meeting with another pastor in the next week or so, asking them that same question. And the thing that I'm coming to is we need to have at least some kind of formal time where we say we're going to look at at least our statement of faith. And we need our men to be able to defend that and explain it to the elders. Tell us about their life. Tell us how they're living, how they're ministering in their family. Um, we're going to be seeing that, so we're encouraged to even put them at that place. The congregation has seen that and put them in this place. And, and then we'll recognize, okay, this man is ready when they're on the firing line to do this. One of the pieces of, of Ed's question that's really important, and we've, we've seen this in a sister church. Um, a few years ago, they hired a pastor. They were deacon-led, um, senior pastor, um, CEO-type model, and finding a new pastor was, was a lot of work, and it caused a lot of confusion. That pastor led them to a plurality of eldership, and they're going through that same process now because he felt like he, the lead pastor needed to step down. And the comment from that assistant pastor is, this is night and day difference. Um, I've heard Mark Dever in an interview say the most helpful thing he's done since he's been at his church was to raise up elders. The most encouraging thing both to him personally and to that body. Now, here's the, here's the thing. I don't want to so overstate this that you're thinking, this is going to go perfect. <laughs> nope. And I think Emmy's question is a good one because we're human. And, and like he said, I thought that was, that's a very important thing that you're, you even hear your elders say. If we stray from the gospel, kick us out. There's mechanisms in the New Testament for that. You're responsible as the body. That's why we're saying elder-led congregationalism. You're responsible in the body to be hearing what the Bible says. And if you're not, you should have questions. And you should take action. You cannot be passive. This is too important for the members of Christ's body to passively sit and listen to false teaching. Both for that man and for them and for the witness of the gospel. So I, I hope that makes sense. We actually, when we, when we do congregation well and New Testament, it raises the bar and says, this is a really high calling. You are an officer in the church 
as a member. That's a high calling. And I want you to see it that way and to hold that responsibility seriously. Your job is to make other disciples in this church. And your part of that is finding leaders who can teach you well to do that, if that makes sense. All right, any other questions? Okay, I have three. Matt, I'll start with you. Will the current deacon team be transitioned to the elders, or how will that work? We will examine each man one at a time, so we would not wholesale just swing them over. So I, I think wisdom would say, again, what, what I've said, and it's guided by the word, the only time reference I have for how quickly to appoint a man is don't be hasty. And then behind it, it talks about, I don't know how all of this applies from that text, but there is something that says if a man that you've put in leadership sins, you who put him there bear some of that responsibility. So we, we want to be slow. And I think my burden is for some of our men is this is new for them. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to throw them in the deep end of the pool and they're drowning, you know, for the first couple of years. Let, let's make sure they're ready. Let's go slow, um, especially the first few. I, I want to be very open and transparent with you. I want them to be ones that were all like, oh, that's obvious. Yes, we already recognize he's leading among us. Daniel? So, as I understood Sure, sure. And I, I think that's always a challenge. One of the things we find is um, you communicate that at different points, and, and that's very good. I think what we're trying to find as leaders is how, how do we communicate that effectively? What happens, and this, this, please don't take this as a pejorative, we are doing this all week long, 40, 50, 60 hours. So we think we've communicated something well. But you're doing something else 40, 50, 60 hours. And you don't think about it necessarily until Sunday. And so we think we've communicated enough and you're saying, I didn't know. And, and we're trying to say, okay, how do we communicate better then? How do we make sure we make that information available? So I think in that case, we'd want to make sure we're putting that. I'm not sure the right way to put that or where we would put that, but that's definitely something that we would say. I think this new structure would help with that because one of the pieces we're going to say with, with the deacon role is there's deacons of member care and then deacons of specific roles. And that would be listed in a place like you're saying where you could say, okay, we're supposed to go to him. Part of the pastoral roles now um, should be fairly clear in the sense of we're trying to label ourselves based on our function. So Pastor Stephen is the pastor of youth discipleship and really outreach missions. Um, so advance, gospel advance. Pastor Jonathan is discipleship administration. Um, I'm the lead pastor, you could say, for preaching and vision is what some guys would say for. So there's a sense where, but there will inevitably be something that people are saying, well, whose role is that? So here's what we tell you to do. Ask Heather. <laughs> She'll... She'll either answer for us or point you to the right person. She's excellent. Alex, last question. Yeah, um, so we for a while focused on missions that relate to building pastors 
and like national pastors. I'm curious, most of our missionaries, are they single pastor models? Or like the people that's a good question. to be pastors? Are they yeah. elders? Yeah, that's a good question. So many of the um, ministries that we have taken on lately as far as missions are what we've seen in Acts 13 and 14. This has been an emphasis, um, especially from last fall, um, is they're evangelizing. They're equipping the body, so elder development, um, and they're establishing healthy churches. So, for instance, we just took on Dan Mee, and he's doing all three. He's actually not pastoring. He's supporting some local pastors. I think they've planted four to six churches, and he's connecting with them. And then he's teaching and raising up a seminary. So that, that's kind of like the sweet spot because it's kind of doing all three things. Um, that's what we're aiming at. So Dan Huffstetler is at a ministry. That's a seminary. Um, Tom Kendall is not as much. It's a unique ministry. Um, the, um, Timothy Seydoux is doing very similarly that way. He's networking and church planning. All right, let's close in prayer. Um, we'll have more times for questions down the road. Thank you for your investment and input. Um, as always, you can come talk to us at any point. 40 to 60 hours means we're ready to hear from you, all right? Um, so come and see us, tell us, shoot us an email. Um, shoot Heather an email. She'll get it to the right person. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your guidance of our body. Thank you for your care for us. That is so clearly evident. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep the mission in sight, that we would be disciples seeking to make more followers of Jesus Christ, both here within these four walls and outside of them. Lord, all for your glory, for your honor, that others might know Christ Lord, that they might know his surpassing worth and value, that he's worth living for, that he's even worth dying for. Lord, give us a heart to magnify him. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.